Thanks for checking out the Candeo podcast. To learn more about us, visit us at candeochurch.com. Good morning, Candeo family. As always, it's great to be with you. How are you doing this morning? Awesome. Awesome. Thanks for being here. Uh, I was having a conversation recently with a friend, and maybe you've had a conversation like this before, but as we sat down, he didn't really need to say anything. I could see everything I needed to know just in his face. My friend, guys, I would say this, like, he knows Jesus and more importantly is known by Jesus. So that's not the question, but like life for him has not been particularly easy. And following Jesus has not been easy. And as we sat down, it was clear that my friend was worn out, frustrated, and discouraged. I'm curious if any of you can relate with that. Have any of you, like, as believers, gotten to such a spot that, like, it's as if you've lost your North Star and you don't know how to get right again? Like, if I was to put it in a picture, like, you're that ship in the night that has lost that North Star and has no idea, like, how to get back on track. Anybody been there before? Or maybe you're the person in my shoes, You're sitting there with the friend as they're laying out life circumstances and you don't know what to do, what to say. If you've been in either one of those two places, the opening words of the book of Titus is a guide for us. Now, some of you may be looking like at the screens or now down at your Bibles going, I think we're reading different Bibles. I don't see where you get that. Often for us, like these intro verses into like letters and books of the Bible, they're often like the Iowa of our Bible. They're the flyover portion, the flyover state. Uh, Don't do that. Don't do that. Because today, it isn't so much what Paul teaches that should catch our attention. It's what he models. Paul has a foundation in his life, ground upon which he stands, that keeps him steady in the midst of all things. I would argue we can see four foundational building blocks that we can even steal from Paul and make the foundation of our own lives. And that's what I want to do today. Today's text provides a guide, a blueprint. And when you lose your North Star and can't get your feet back under you, or you're sitting there with a friend who's lost their North Star and they don't know what to do, how to establish a foundation, where to run to for those who are in Christ to get back to that foundation and move forward. And here are the four foundational building blocks. I'm going to give them to you right away. They're this. Who you are, which is our identity. Why you are here, our purpose. What God has done, God's work. And what God has said, God's word. All right, before we dive into this, I want to just zoom out and give you a little background here on what we have in our hands when we open up to the book of Titus. So if you've got a Bible, please open up to Titus chapter 1. And when you do that, what you have in your hands is somebody else's mail. You right now are reading somebody else's mail. Uh, This is a letter written about roughly 2,000 years ago from a seasoned church leader named Paul to a younger church leader named Titus who has been called to a pretty difficult assignment. Perhaps you know of Paul. Uh, In Christianity, Paul's a big deal. Paul, this once leading opposition to Jesus has this radical conversion and now is the world's greatest missionary theologian and is 
the greatest missionary theologian to ever walk the face of the earth. As you open up to your New Testament, over one third of our New Testament he wrote. Paul's a big deal. Paul's a household name. Titus for you may not be, but he should be. Uh, Paul is, uh, Titus is an absolute stud. Titus was kind of um, Paul's, I, I'd call like his Navy SEAL, because he was the guy that whenever there was a particularly difficult situation that somebody needed to kind of engage and get things set right, Titus was often the guy. The first time we see that is in Corinth, and now we see it here in this letter on the island of Crete. So you know a little bit about Paul, you know a little bit about Titus. Let me tell you a bit about the island of Crete. Uh, I actually should have a map here for you of Crete, so you can kind of see where it's at. Um, just below Athens, Ephesus, big red arrow pointing to it, so you can't miss it, the island of Crete. Um, the easiest way to describe the situation in the church in Crete is probably to use um, this like modern comparison craze that's sweeping through social media, how it started, how it's going. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Okay, like the how it started, how it's going meme thing is like lost on you. Essentially, here's what you do. You take a picture that kind of describes like, hey, here's how it started. And then you put a picture next to it of like how it's going. So one example, we're a couple days away from Valentine's Day, how it started, two of us, how it's going, a lot of us. Uh, love of my life there and our awesome kids. Another example though, maybe this year you started with some awesome uh, resolutions, how it started and this is how it's going. <laughs> or maybe you bought yourself a new makeup kit. So how it started is this, and how it's going. <laughs> or for you office fans out there, which I know that doesn't speak everybody's language, you know this one. <laughs> how it started, and how it's going. <laughs> I can't look at that picture without hearing Kevin's voice go, it's probably the thing I do best, right? Like, <laughs> right, now to bring this to Crete, let me show you how it started. This is like a, a picture of like kind of essentially how it started. That's not Crete, okay? But it's like an example, like it's a, it's a metaphor, like how it started and how it's going. And you're like intently looking at it like, what's the difference? This is not, this is not a tough challenge, guys, here. They're the same picture. The reality is in Crete, a work was started there, but it never progressed much beyond that. If you go to Acts 2, most people point to the start of the church in Crete is built around the Acts 2 moment when the Holy Spirit is poured out on Jesus' disciples and Peter stands up and proclaims salvation through Christ alone to a large crowd of people from every nation on earth, including people from Crete. Stands up, he proclaims the gospel, 3,000 people trust Christ that day and the church is born in Jerusalem. And eventually some of those people from Crete, took the gospel back to their home island, and that's how the church started. And now as Paul writes Titus, it's roughly 30 years later. And yes, there's a church there, <laughs> but Titus's to-do list is pretty significant. Uh, Crete was not an easy place to be the church. It's a rough island. In fact, even their own philosophers, people from Crete would say about the people from Crete that they are liars, evil beasts, and gluttons. 
if that was the description of the Cedar Valley, would you move here? Okay, all right, no. All right, I don't know where that came from, but I appreciate the participation. But the godlessness of Crete had infiltrated the church, sadly. And as we walk through just this short letter, I'm just gonna rattle through, like, like here's the issues you're gonna see that Titus needs to address, to correct, to get right. First, there are many rebellious, money-motivated teachers who are ruining entire households by teaching what isn't true. And adding on to that, that there aren't men within the church, leaders within the church who actually have enough courage and theological depth to challenge them. That's one problem. Older men and women within the church weren't necessarily marked by maturity. Younger men and women weren't necessarily marked by being control and in control of their actions and behaviors. They were poor employees in the workplace, poor citizens of their country. They were stubborn and consumed by hills not worth dying on, and that was gripping the church and ripping it apart. Many were claiming to know God, but denying him with their lives. Having been called by Jesus to be salt and light in the world, they weren't attracting people to Jesus. They were actually a stench driving people away from Jesus. To borrow a line from like the greatest movie ever, Gladiator. See if you can follow me on this. It's kind of a quote, like kind of a direct quote. But Jesus had a vision of the church in Crete once, Proximo, and this is not it. This is not it. What Jesus had is a vision for the church. It's right here in Titus 2.14. If you want like a summary of this entire letter in one verse, it's right here in 2.14, that he gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession, eager to do good works. That was the vision that Jesus had for the church in Crete. And so big picture, when you open up this letter, what you have in front of you is a blueprint of what happens when a church loses its North Star, how do you get it right again? That's big picture, but I told you already, right? This is not just a letter written to churches, it's written to people. Of how when we lose our North Star, how do we get right again? So let's go back to the building blocks, see how they're displayed in Paul's life and steal them for our own lives. How about that? So here's building block number one that we see in the first four verses. Who are you? This is our identity. Paul writes in verse one, his opening words, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Just pause there. I've heard it said that fortunate is the person who knows who they are and why they exist. You got those two things figured out. You got a lot of life figured out. Paul knows who he is. He's able right away with just two words to identify who he is. He identifies himself first as a servant. Some of your Bible translations might use the word slave or bond servant. Essentially, the picture behind this word is of somebody who is so indebted to somebody else that they have sold themselves into slavery to try to pay back their debt. That was Paul. The radical, sovereign grace of God that had been poured out on his life through Christ alone was not lost on Paul. He understood, as Titus 2 says, that he was redeemed himself and that he was purchased not with materials like gold or silver, but with the precious blood of Christ. And having been bought at such a price, he knew, as 1 Corinthians 6 says, as he writes to the Corinthians, he was not his own. 
But Jesus owned him. But not only does he identify himself as a servant, which would be like a title of humility, he pairs it with the word apostle, which would be a title of authority. These two things, humility and authority, but also describes himself as an apostle. That word means sent one, messenger. Or to borrow a word from our most recent series in Acts, witness. Paul knew who he was. Christian, do you know who you are? Like if I was to catch you today after the service out in the commons area and we just had a quick conversation and I dropped this question on you, who are you? Which we don't often ask that question to each other. Like, who are you? What would you say? You know, maybe your response would be, um, I'm Cody Klein. At least that's the name that my parents gave me. Uh, I'm a husband. I'm a father of four. You saw them. Uh, if you're into sorcery and fans of things like that, I'm a two-wing 13 on the Enneagram. I know that's not a profile. I'm poking fun at it, obviously. That's also why the sorcery thing was in there. Like even in our world too, like um, when we answer the question, like, who are you? Often the way that we see that is like synonymous with the question, like, what do you do? Even as we raise up small children, that the conversation is like, what do you want to be when you grow up? And what we mean by that is their job. We're not thinking like the bigger picture, like, who do you want to be? And who are you? Who has God made you to be? See, here's the problem with this, guys, is that when you place your identity in something that can die, break, or change, you're placing your identity in the wrong thing. If at some point where you place your identity can change or you're going to be looking at it in a casket or you're going to be throwing it away and it's going to go off to landfill, you are putting your identity in the wrong thing. When it comes to our identity, we often seek out horizontally what we were meant to find vertically. The Bible is full of identity language. That's like really grounding for us. We see words like creator and created. It helps establish our identity. Sinner and saint, rebellious or redeemed, lost, found, orphans or sons and daughters. We often seek out horizontally what we were meant to find vertically. What God says about us is what matters the most. Who are you? Better question is, who does God say that you are? If you have placed your faith in Christ, Christian, understand this. Who are you? You have been saved by the blood of Christ and you have been sent in the Spirit's power. And if you want a, another verse, because maybe you look at that and go like, man, that sounds like this whole like purchased uh, slave language, like it sounds too like cold, like, transactional, like, of course, he bought me, so I owe him, that type of thing. The gospel is much warmer than that. This is one of my favorite identity verses when it comes to who am I. Romans 8, 15, and 16. You might want to write this down and memorize this. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Instead, you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, 
Father. The Spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. You want to know who you are? Romans 8, 15, 16 says, that's who you are if you are in Christ. Paul knew who he was. He also knew why God had put him on this earth. That was clear to him. Read with me. Go back to verse 1. We'll start again. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Here's why. For, he uses the word for, the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. Paul had been one to Christ and now no longer lived for his own agenda. He lived for Christ's agenda. He was saved and sent by Jesus Christ. And now there was two items on his job description. Here's the first thing that more people would trust Christ. And here's the second thing, that as people would trust Christ, that they would grow in their knowledge of Christ that would lead to something. That their beliefs would dictate their behaviors. That there would be an essential link between what they believe and what they would do. Notice here for Paul, salvation wasn't his end goal. It wasn't enough for him for somebody just to cross the faith line. He wanted to see them mature and their relationship with Christ continually being changed by the grace of Christ. Again, Paul knew who he was and he knew why God had put him on this earth. That was abundantly clear to him. Do you? Do you? Because you need to. These things are foundational for us. Here's what Jesus says to us. Like Paul, we also have been sent. He says, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. So why has God put you on this earth? One, you are sent into this world with absolute purpose. And in our minds, we can get this jumbled because we start thinking that there's like God's varsity and God's JV. We've talked about this before. There's like people that are in the game and some who ride the bench that there's the paid professionals who are doing ministry and then there's everybody else. God sees no difference here. He has called all of you into service. This is what Paul wrote to the Ephesian church as he kind of expands on this idea. Ephesians 4 says this, and he gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. Yes, there are some that lead out front. That's the role that they have in building up the church. But Note this, that yes, he gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers to what? To equip the saints for the work of ministry. God has never been interested in creating an audience. He wants participants, full participation in that. And again, note the goal He gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. To what? To build up the body of Christ until we reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of God's Son, growing into maturity with a stature measured by Christ's fullness. If you are in Christ, you absolutely should know who you are that you have been saved, you have been redeemed, you have been purchased. You have been sent, filled with the Spirit's power and given a supernatural gift by which God wants you to contribute to build up and grow others around you and across the globe in the faith. 
And as long as you have breath in your lungs, that is not an accident. But God has put you on this earth then to build up and serve the body of Christ, to build up one another until we reach full maturity. This clarity on who you are and why you're here, these things are foundational for us. But now I want to go to building block number three and what God has done. I'll go back again and reread verse one. Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness in the hope of eternal life. In the hope of eternal life. As you read the letter that Paul wrote to Titus, every time he demands that our faith, like what we proclaim, gospel proclamation, every time he demands that our faith be matched with gospel demonstration, with works that flow from our life from Christ. Every time he demands that our faith be matched with good works, every time it's fueled and motivated by hope of eternal life in Christ. You can see this here in verse two. If you wanna underline it, go to chapter two, see verse 13, he does the same thing, speaking of hope, and he does it again in chapter three, verse seven. Every time, He demands that their faith is matched by works. He fuels it with hope. All of these things are are meant to kind of move as a chain together. That you have faith, knowledge, godliness, hope. All these things move together. As one increases, the others increase. Make sense? Hope. Hope in eternal life. See, this is, this is foundational for us because it's this hope that when we walk through life and all of a sudden our legs get swept out from underneath us, another setback, another mistake, another heartache, it's, it's hope. It's hope that puts our feet back under us. Hope of eternal life in Jesus Christ, this, this hope that this is not all that there is, this hope that it will get better than this, this hope that someday all of the sad things will become untrue. This isn't some flimsy hope, like I, I, I hope that this happens, but we have an unshakable hope because it is promised by an unshakable God who has already laid down the payment in full for our sins, guaranteeing our future. It's an unshakable hope because it's promised by an unshakable God, which leads us to building block number four, what God has said. Because I've I've heard it said that a promise is only as good as the one who makes it. Not even another word into it, that a promise is only as trustworthy as the one who makes it. Here's what Paul says about our God who made this promise to us, right? In the hope of eternal life that God who cannot lie. Literally in the Greek, the word there is the unlying God. In the hope of eternal life that God who cannot lie promised before time began in his own time, he has revealed his word and the preaching with which I was entrusted by the command of God, our Savior. 
God who cannot lie. God who cannot lie. Let me, let me pause for a bit and stretch your minds for just a second. Can you imagine what it would be like if God could lie? Like if, if God could lie, I mean, there'd be no guarantee of forgiveness of sins. Maybe you told us that, but that was a lie. There'd be no guarantee of life beyond the grave. No guarantee that in all things, God is working for our good. No guarantee that every injustice will one day be made right. And I could just go on like this. Like, as hard as it is, so understand this, as hard as it is for our minds to comprehend a God who could lie, understand for the Cretans, the people living on the island of Crete, it was equally as hard for them to imagine a God who couldn't lie. Like they were coming at it from the other side. In Crete, understand this, the island of Crete is known as the birthplace for Zeus, the king of all Greek gods, who was a notorious liar and womanizer. One story about Zeus, just you're going to think I'm making this up, but, but at one moment in Zeus's life, I'll quote that, um, he heard a prophecy that one of his two children that were going to be born to him through his then wife, that one of the two of them was going to overthrow him someday and take his throne. So what he did is he lied to her and got her, I don't know why she did this, but he got her to turn into a fly and then he ate her. And that way, crushing any opposition that he would have in the future and then married another woman. Like that's, that's who the Cretans grew up worshiping and idolizing and thinking that's the picture of God. Like this, this moment here, as Paul lays these words, these are incredibly purposeful because the God that we worship is not one who changes, who not, doesn't, doesn't cool off in his affections, doesn't change his mind or change his words. Right? If, if Zeus is over here and he's a liar and a womanizer, let's hold this up in contrast to Jesus who stood before a crowd of people, gave the greatest sermon ever given, and then followed it up with this. He said this, the one who hears these words of mine and builds his life upon them is like a wise man who built his house upon the rock. The rains came, the rivers rose, the winds pounded against that house yet it did not fall. Christian, if you're looking for foundations, you can look at all these things. Who are you? Why are you here? What has God done? And what has he said? And find foundations. Foundations. Paul was on solid ground because he knew these four things. These four things changed everything about him and gave him a mission, gave him a message to take out to all the world that before God even looked at the darkness and the emptiness and said, let there be light, that Jesus Christ, this plan of salvation had already been hatched. It had already been set. I'm the recipient of that sovereign grace and he wanted others to know Jesus as well. Christian, if you're looking for sure footing, 
if you lose your North Star, come back to these four essential building blocks. Now, I'm not trying to be like Zeus here and lie to you. I actually have a fifth one. <laughs> because that's not, that's not all that we're given here. There, there's one more thing uh, that I want to add in that I think kind of, kind of brings all these things together. Um, because we also need to remember then that not only has God given us these four foundational building blocks, he's also brought us into a spiritual family in the midst of all this. Notice how he ends here, verse four. He writes to Titus, my true son in our common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. It should catch our attention here, church, that Paul, a Jew, calls Titus, who is an uncircumcised Greek, his son. If you don't know what that means, essentially Paul's entire childhood would have been built around an understanding that he had been born a part of the family of God and there were others like him, the Jews, and everybody else like Titus was outside of the family of God. This is what the gospel does. This is what the blood of Jesus does, is that this blood of Jesus over us, this banner over us is so big that it wipes out all of the divides between us. That in Christ, there is no Jew or Gentile or black or white or that there would be an American or a Russian or Iowans or Nebraskans. Like we have all been saved by grace and adopted into a common family where we are called to serve one another and serve alongside one another as spiritual brothers and sisters. That is the beauty of the gospel. That if you are in Christ, you have a family in the church. I remember I went to a, a friend's house once and saw a really cute sign. Maybe you've seen this one before that says, friends are the family that you choose. You guys ever seen that? The, the, the idea behind it is like, you know, a family, you're kind of born into that and you're, you're stuck with them. <laughs> yeah. And for some that's better than others. But like, you know, you're stuck with your family, but, but friends, like those are the family that you choose. Understand what he's saying here. Yeah, but... But the church, that's the family that God chooses. And every person that Christ has saved is invaluable, supernaturally, spiritually gifted to serve the body. And every one of you in Christ is rooted in an unshakable foundation. And we need each other. On that day when I sat with my friend, I was reminded of that, that quote, you know, like more often we need to be reminded than we're taught. So I sat there with my friend for a moment panicking like on what to say. And then I let Titus 1 verses 1 through 4 just serve as a guide. And I looked at him and I said, hey, do you mind if I just share the gospel with you? And he kind of got puzzled at first. You know, I was like, I, I, I'm not saying that because I, I don't think you know it. Like, I know you know the gospel, but right now I do believe you're struggling to believe it. So I just opened up scriptures with him and just reminded my friend 
of who he is in Christ. The purpose that he has on this earth in Christ. To celebrate Christ's finished work on the cross and what he has done. And to delight in God's word together. One of my favorite moments in the whole conversation was when I just asked him the question. I said, what is your favorite aspect of the gospel? I would encourage you write that down and like talk to your connection group about that this week. Like what's your favorite part of the gospel? And it was just beautiful to sit there with a friend and kind of like just stoke the fires of grace within our hearts that maybe had grown a little bit cold. And the thing I shared with him, I remember A.W. Tozer wrote this in his book, Knowledge of the Holy. He wrote about God's unchanging affections for us. Uh, One of the phrases he uses is that he goes, God's affections for us never cool or change. And I said, that's one of my favorite aspects of the gospel is that no matter how I feel, whether God feels close to me or distant to me today, his affections for me never cool off. They never change. His affections for me as, are as white hot today as they were the day that he put his son on the cross. That day, my brother needed me. And it won't be long until the tables are turned and I'm going to need my brother. That's the beauty of a spiritual family. And what we're going to do, me and my brothers and Others in this room, we're going to do this dance of perseverance all the days of our lives, back and forth, me encouraging you, you encouraging me, making sure that we're not hardened by sin's deception in our hearts, but continually encouraging one another until Jesus takes us home, just as he promised. And the one who made that promise doesn't lie. Church, can we pray and thank God for that? God, my consistent heart and plea this week in prayer before you, as you know, has been not so much that these opening words of Titus would be a challenge to our people. I, I, I don't walk away, I want to walk away and feel like I've challenged people. I, I want to walk away and know that you have encouraged this family through my words, through your words through me. So I pray that your people this morning would be encouraged that if they feel like they've lost that North Star, don't know how to get their feet back under them again, that they would go back to these foundational building blocks, open your word, and continue to delight in who we are, who you have made us to be in Christ, what you've called us to and given us purpose in life for, and what you've done and what you've said. And that not only would we be encouraged today, that we'd be able to leave this place equipped that the saints would be equipped now to go and to be an encouragement to other brothers and sisters who need this word today, spoken into their lives, prayed over their lives, and modeled for them. And we love you and thank you for our brothers and sisters in Christ all around us. Amen. This has been a message from Candeo Church. To learn more about us or to hear more messages, visit us at candeochurch.com.